Well, do turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew and to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and we'll begin our reading in verse 14, and we'll read through verse 35. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? This is the word of God. Let's give it our full attention. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportune time to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord, He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. I've read a bit more than I will actually be preaching on today for the sake of context. Uh, there There are certain passages in Scripture which are just... They're just so formative for the church's life and practice that their importance can almost not be overstated. And today, as we consider the institution of the Lord's Supper, we're looking at one of these passages. 
The Lord's Supper is, of course, one of the two sacraments that Jesus gave to his church to be continued to the end of the world. And while there have been differences in both the manner and in the frequency of its celebration, the church has continued to observe this same meal since that first night in which Christ instituted it on the eve of his death. Now, one of the things that is maybe a bit unique about our church's practice is that we celebrate this supper every week. For many of you, I know because I've talked with lots of you about this, uh, this is the first church in which you have ever done that. And so it is unique, but when I say it's unique, I don't mean that it's unique in terms of the history of the church. I mean, it's simply unique in our current moment. Uh, Actually, this has been the church's practice through most of its history. Uh, The church celebrated the supper every time they gathered together. And uh, my original sermon notes contained three or four pages of historical evidence for that practice. (laughs) Uh, going from the New Testament to the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Ignatius, the Didache, uh, on to Augustine and the Reformation. And I have mercifully decided to edit all of that out. Um, but, but those who have argued against this practice of weekly communion have always uh, supported it on the grounds that if the supper is celebrated too frequently it loses something of that special character and it can quickly devolve into something that is simply ritualistic and rote. And I can very much appreciate that concern. Uh, The problem with that line of reasoning, however, is that the same argument could be made for any element of worship. Why could we not say the same thing about praying or preaching we're singing. Donald Poundstone, many of you will know that name. He's a uh, retired OPC minister. He wrote years ago in, in New Horizons, he said, we might imagine a congregant coming to the pastor and saying, you know, pastor, your preaching is such a blessing to me. It's so helpful to my spiritual growth that I really think we should have a sermon, say, once every several months. That way we'll appreciate your message so much more. And it will never become commonplace or just empty routine. Look, the truth of the matter is that anything we do regularly and in a ritual way has the danger of becoming commonplace. But that does not mean we don't need routines. It does not mean that there are not certain things that we should do regularly and ritually. And I would argue that this is especially true of the Lord's Supper. Anything that you want to get good at, whether it's playing a musical instrument or playing golf, you need to routinely practice at it. And I would argue that the Lord's Supper is a ritual that Christ has given us precisely so that we can routinely practice receiving the gospel. It is a routine where we can practice humbling ourselves before the Lord. 
where we can practice examining our hearts, where we can practice receiving a gift that we do not deserve. And because that runs so contrary to our sinful sense of self-reliance, we need this routine. We need to practice it regularly. We need this weekly reminder that the gospel is not something that we do. It's something that we receive. Take, eat, this is for you. The Heidelberg Catechism asks, what does that mean? to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood. And it answers, it means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and in this way to receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, I'm not interested in kicking dirt on anyone who practices the Lord's Supper less frequently than weekly. But I am interested in giving you justification for why we do it this way in this church. And today, as I set before you this account of the Lord's institution of the supper, my goal is to set it before you in such a way that you want to receive it regularly. To set it before you in such a way that it does not become rote or dull but rather is the most wonderful and invigorating routine, something that you will eagerly and expectantly receive the way a starving man might receive a piece of bread, that you will hunger and thirst to come to the Lord's table. And so as we look at this passage and as we consider this institution of the supper, let me give you three points here to help uh, organize our thinking. Uh, The first is preparation for Passover. As we see in verses 17 through 19, as Jesus and his disciples prepare to celebrate this festival. Uh, Secondly, we'll look at the preparation for the participants. As Jesus does some work of preparing the disciples themselves for the meal they're going to receive. And then finally, we will look at his preparation for the passion as he prepares his disciples to receive the supper. So first, as we consider his preparations for the Passover, uh, you know, if you've ever been in the kitchen and you've been preparing a meal, you know there are lots of things to do. Uh, That was uh, extraordinarily true of the Passover. But I think it's, it's helpful to remind ourselves here at the beginning that Jesus uh, very intentionally sets his death in the context of this feast. Chapter 26 began with these words from Jesus. You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The Passover, of course, was one of those great rituals of Israel, where the whole nation would receive and reenact the events of that great redemptive deliverance from Egypt. That event where the blood of the sacrificial lamb was spread over the doors of their homes so that when God came in judgment, he would literally pass over the people who were covered with the blood of the lamb. So as Jesus sets his crucifixion in this Passover context, he's teaching us something about how he wants us 
to understand his death. That he goes to the cross as a sacrificial victim to save his people from the avenging wrath of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so now as we come to verses 17 through 19, those two days have passed. And now the Passover is upon them. And so we read in verse 17, Now the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us to prepare to eat the Passover? The Passover had all of these preparations. Most notable, of course, was the slaughter of that sacrificial lamb and the marking of the doorposts and the lintel with its blood as they prepared the meat. The Jews actually referred to this part of the ceremony as doing the Passover, what the ESV translates as keeping the Passover. But there were a number of other important preparations. Uh, For example, the home in which you were going to eat the Passover had to be cleansed. All of the yeast that might be in the home had to be removed from the premises. Utensils and platters, four cups of wine had to be prepared. Uh, The bitter herbs that you would eat it with. But of course, before you could do any of those things at all, you had to find a place to do the Passover. And to do it right, you had to do it in the city of Jerusalem. Now, just imagine there are literally hundreds of thousands of people swarming to Jerusalem, trying to find a place on the day before the eve of Passover. Would I imagine be like trying to find an Airbnb near the swamp on the night that the Gators play Alabama? And the disciples are concerned, and they say, where are we going to host this meal, right? Uh, Mark records the longer version of these events. If you want to read about it, you can find them there. I'm just going to unbutton this. They find this man, right? And uh, he's carrying a jar of water, and they're told to follow him. And wherever he goes, right, you're to say to the master of that house, These words, uh, that the the teacher says, my time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover in your house. So unbeknownst to the disciples, right, Jesus has made all of these preparations for them in advance. But Matthew skips all of those details. What Matthew is concerned to tell us is these words, the teacher says, My time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover at your house. If you survey the gospel accounts, you're going to find that when Jesus talks about his time or his hour, he's always referring to his death and his resurrection. So, for example, there is this uh, account in John chapter 7, where Jesus' brothers are urging him to go up to the Feast of Booths and to make himself known to everybody, to make his messianic identity known. And Jesus tells them, no, my hour is not yet. My time is not at hand. But then later, just a few chapters later in chapter 13, There's another incident where we read now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were with him in the world, he loved them to the end. So when Jesus tells his disciples to say this to this man, tell him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. Jesus knows what time it is, right? Jesus is in control. Uh, He is directing these events. He's self-aware that he is the Passover lamb. But he doesn't run from it. Rather, he runs to it. And he says to his disciples, I will do the Passover with you. When Jesus realizes his time is at hand, what does he want to do? He wants to do the Passover. And again, the ESV translates that, keep the Passover. But I think we lose that Jewish idiom of doing the Passover, which refers to the actual slaughter of the lamb and the covering of the doorposts with blood. And just take a moment and reflect on how that ritual would affect Jesus. What must have been going through his mind as he watched that lamb's throat being cut? What was in his mind as he and his disciples took the blood and they spread it over the door? Certainly he could not help but contemplate the sacrifice of his own life that he was about to make his own body that he was about to give, his own blood that he was about to pour out. Even in that moment, he was loving his disciples to the end. There's this really interesting little play on words here in Greek. It's why I read back to Judas's betrayal, because in Greek, it talks about Judas seeking an opportune time to betray him. And Jesus says, My time is at hand. There's a sense in which they're both looking for the right time. Right? Judas is looking for the time to deliver Jesus over. And Jesus is looking for the right time to go. Judas is looking for the right time to cash in. And Jesus is looking for the right time to fulfill all of this obedience to his father. And so with that sobering contrast before us between the time that Judas is looking for and the time that Jesus is looking for, let's consider the next point here, the preparation for the participants in verses 20 through 25. So the preparations having been made, right? The evening of the Passover has come. And verse 20 tells us that Jesus is now reclined at the table with his twelve Jesus and his disciples would be celebrating the meal according to the customs of the day. They'd be reclining on cushions that would have been around this large U-shaped sort of table. Jesus would have a particular spot at that table as the host of the Passover meal. Uh, And Jesus has probably already gone through part of these festivities. He's probably already recounted the story of Israel's redemption. Because verse 21 tells us that they are now eating. And while they're eating, while they're partaking of the Passover meal, Jesus, he brings everything down a notch, doesn't he? Passover is a really joyous occasion. And into this joyous occasion, he says, Truly I say to you, 
one of you will betray me. I think it's really interesting that Jesus puts it like that. Remember, Jesus is in control, complete control. He's already predicted his crucifixion. He knows about the plot against him. In fact, he knows that it's Judas who is going to betray him. John tells us specifically that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was that was going to betray him. And yet Jesus doesn't say, Judas will betray me. Instead, he says, one of you will betray me. And what is the effect of this? The the effect of this is that all of the other disciples become sorrowful. And they begin to say to one another, Is it I, Lord? Now let me just say a few things about this that I think are worth considering. First, note what they do not say. They do not say, Is it him, Lord? They don't start looking around the room. They don't start casting shade on others. They look inward. They ask, is it I? They also don't get defensive about it. They don't say something like, well, Jesus, how could you even say that I would do such a thing like that? After all this time, I've been following you. No, there's, there's a measure of humility in it. And yet with the humility, there's also a measure of confidence. That doesn't come across well in English, but in Greek, the particle that is used here expects a negative answer, right? So uh, we might put it like this in English. It isn't me, Lord, is it? Or we might say, surely it's not me. As they are examining their hearts before the Lord, they believe that they are not betrayers. As they look into their hearts, they they don't believe this about themselves. And yet, at the same time, they're not so overly confident that they're unaffected by his statement. They take it to heart. And their question is that I, Lord, is just begging for some reassurance from Jesus. Tell me it's not me. He's going to give them that assurance. But first he gives them time to reflect. He could have said, Judas is the hypocrite. Judas is the one who's going to betray me. But as one author puts it, he says, Jesus seems interested in creating space for a kind of self-reflection before he celebrates the meal. He wants them to celebrate the meal in a way that they are personally aware of what is in their hearts. I love that. He wants them to be self-aware enough to know what is in their hearts. And that continues to be true for us. Uh, Paul says that part of what it means to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner is that we examine ourselves. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
Incidentally, this is one of the reasons that we distinguish between communicant members and non-communicant members. Those who are admitted to the table and those who are not yet admitted to the table. Because nobody should come to the Lord's Supper without first having done this work of examining their own hearts as to their love to Christ and their faith to feed upon Him. And I think that when Jesus puts the statement in this way, one of you will betray me, it creates that space for self-examination. I think it also does something else. It also provides an opportunity for Judas to repent. One last chance. And so Jesus adds this very serious warning. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, this is another Jewish idiom that I think is lost on us sometimes. When Jesus says, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me, he's not making a specific prediction about who it is. After all, if that were the point, Judas Judas could just avoid dipping his hand in the dish, right? In fact, all of the disciples would avoid dipping their hand in the dish. If you're at a party and someone says this, like, I'm not going near the salsa. (laughs) Nope. No, that's not the point at all. The point is that this expression, one who has dipped his hand in the dish with me, is saying that he's being betrayed by a close friend. This is someone I get drinks with. This is someone I have over to my house for dinner. This is someone who is in my circle and sphere. Meals were not just a way of consuming carbs and macronutrients. Meals were expressions of friendship and of fellowship. I think we understand that a little bit, right? We have fellowship meals. We're about to do that ourselves. We are about to partake of this meal and join together around a table. That was highlighted in the ancient world. And I think what is going on here is Jesus says this as a fulfillment of Psalm 41.9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, even he has lifted up his heel against me. Maybe you have felt that sting of betrayal before. Maybe you've been betrayed by a friend or a spouse or a child. No one has the ability to hurt us more than those who are closest to us. And Jesus, in taking our humanity upon himself, shares in all of these miseries. Even the the misery of what it is to be betrayed by a close friend. And so Jesus speaks this word of woe. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You might remember the the earlier sermon on the seven woes that Jesus pronounced on the leaders of Israel. Remember that a woe is a prophetic pronouncement of judgment. But when we looked at those woes, and we surveyed the Old Testament material on woes, woes are not just a prophetic pronouncement of judgment. They are also an expression of lamentation and of grief. 
the prophets don't enjoy speaking woes over the people. And I don't think Jesus enjoys speaking woe here. He doesn't say this with a calloused heart. He simultaneously feels both the anger and deep sorrow that only the betrayal of a close friend can cause. And yet Jesus still says, this is according to the plan and purpose of God. Right? The Son of Man is going as it is written of him. And you can think of many Old Testament passages where it is written of him that he will go. Right? Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Just note the concurrence of these things here. That the betrayal of Judas has not thwarted the plans and purposes of God, has it? And at the same time, the plans and purposes of God have not excused Judas's actions. Jesus affirms both the sovereignty of God and the moral agency and responsibility of man. That is a sermon all in its own right. But it's not the main point of this passage. So I want to come back and I want, I want to think about Judas here for a moment. How does he respond in this moment? Where he's given this, this last opportunity for repentance. Does he repent? Does he heed the warning? Does he beat his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. No, he plays the chameleon. He attempts to blend in with the other disciples. He asks the exact same question. They've all asked it already, and now Judas asks it at the end, attempting to bluff the very one who sees the hearts of men. But note, there's a one-word difference in Judas' reply. All of the other disciples say, Is it I, Lord? Judas says, Is it I, Rabbi? Is it I, Teacher? Now, we've looked at those words throughout this Gospel, and we've seen the ways that the adversaries of Jesus often use that term rabbi, right? They come and they they give him this show of respect. They're appeasing the crowds, but they don't call him Lord. There's a difference, isn't there? The word Lord says something about a professed submission and subjection that the word rabbi simply does not. And so though grammatically the phrase still expects that negative answer, Jesus surprises us with a positive affirmation. You have said so. Now whether he's speaking quietly to Judas or whether he says this in the hearing of others, it's not clear. According to the material of the other Gospels, it's likely that John is on his right hand and Judas is on his left. So it could be that he speaks this in a whisper. But in any case, Judas knows. 
from this point on, Judas knows, and Jesus will tell him, what you do, go and do quickly. But as Judas is putting on airs, and he's playing this role, the other disciples are still laboring under this new knowledge that one of their circle is going to betray the Lord. And they're asking themselves, are they betrayers? If you go on to the passage we're going to look at next week, and which is why I read it this week, you're going to find out that Jesus says some hard things to the disciples. He's going to say to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. He's going to say to Peter, you will deny me three times this night. Peter's going to adamantly declare the opposite, right? Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But Jesus knows these men. He knows their hearts. He knows what's going to happen. Right? He knows of Judas's betrayal. He knows of Peter's denials. He knows that they're all going to scatter. And yet he still wants to share a meal with them. He knows them better than they know themselves. He knows that they're overconfident in their abilities. He knows that they're prone to stand in their own strength. He knows that they're prone to underestimate the power of temptation. And he knows they're prone to overestimate their strength to resist it. Does that sound like anybody you know? Do you ever underestimate the power of temptation? Ever overestimate your own power? Jesus knows all this. He's not naive about whom he's sharing the table with. Just as he's not naive about our sins and struggles. He's not naive about the things that we have done in secret this week. He's not naive about our thoughts, our words, our actions. He knows all these things. And it's precisely because he knows these things, because he knows that we are so weak and so needy, that he invites us to the table. Jesus does not invite us to the table because we are worthy to come. He invites us to the table in our unworthiness because he sees our need and wants to meet it. Because he hears that little quiver in our voice as we ask ourselves, is it I, Lord? And I think that is a good transition to our final point then as we actually look at his preparation for the passion as he institutes the supper. We read here in verse 26, now after they were eating, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. At the Passover meal, the host, whoever was leading the meal, would take the bread and they would hold it up and they would say, this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. And then the celebrants would respond, this the Almighty did for me when I came out of Egypt. You hear that sense of participation in the meal. 
It's as though they were there, as though they had participated in that affliction, as though they were there at that exodus exodus deliverance. But here as Jesus is celebrating the meal, when he takes the unleavened bread, he doesn't say those words. Instead, he shifts gears. And that old Passover meal is caught up and transformed And it is endowed with new meaning. It is extended in a new way. As Jesus says, take and eat, this is my body. And then taking a cup of wine, he says, drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's clearly taking uh, these Passover symbols of redemption, and he is interpreting them and recasting them in the light of his greater work of redemption that he is about to accomplish. And let me just highlight a few things about these words that I think are important for us to hear. And the first is this, that the Lord's Supper is a gift. The Lord's Supper is a gift. Note the verbs. He took, he blessed, he broke, He gave. We need to understand that the supper is not our gift to God. It's not something we are doing. It's something He is doing for us. In that way, it's like baptism, right? Baptism is not our act of obedience to God. It is God's sign and seal to us, something that we receive, something that is done to us. That's true of the supper as well. And though we participate, participate in the meal, we participate as recipients. We are receiving a gift. And what is the gift? What do we receive in the bread and in the wine? Well, very simply, we receive Christ and all of his benefits to our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. I don't say it that clearly. That's the shorter catechism that says it that clearly. We receive Christ and all of his benefits for our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. It's for you. And when he says that, he doesn't mean it in some sort of cannibalistic way, as though we were corporally or carnally feeding on Christ. No, remember the Heidelberg Catechism How do we feed upon Christ? By faith. By believing. And the Heidelberg Catechism says that because Jesus says that. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, Sir, give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he goes on to say, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. How do you feed on Christ? When these elements come to you and you hold the bread and you hold the wine and you take it into your mouth, how do you feed on him? You feed on him by faith. So the supper is a gift. The gift is Christ and all of his benefits. 
and note that it is all of his benefits. Jesus says, this is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Right? That is a benefit. It's not just the person of Jesus, it's the work of Jesus. It's for us. Our problem is not just that we are weak in faith. Our problem is that we are sinners. Right? We need forgiveness. And the supper assures us that Christ's blood is poured out precisely for the forgiveness of our sins. So the supper is a gift wherein we receive Christ and we receive all of his benefits by faith. But let me say one more thing about this. The supper is not just a gift, it's also a command. Jesus doesn't hold out the bread and the wine and say to his disciples, you know, you really might consider taking these. You might consider that this might have some positive influence in your life. No, he says, take, eat, drink. They're, they're words of reception, but they are also imperatives. Jesus knows what we need. He knows our struggle. He knows that we, we find it difficult to rest in the forgiveness that he offers. Right? We hear the language of being a worthy partaker of the Lord's Supper. And that's biblical language. Paul tells us that we should not take the supper in an unworthy manner, lest we be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But sometimes I think that we hear that language of being worthy, and we think that we need to make ourselves worthy. As if we could. Right? Nothing could be further from the truth. Worthy partakers are not those who sort of shine themselves up to come to the table. Worthy partakers are those who know that they don't deserve a seat at the table. But in humility and faith, recognize that there's nothing worthy in themselves. And so with grief and sorrow for sin, come with faith and repentance to feed upon Christ. Come desiring that they might obey him more and better. And I think that's why Jesus commands that we do this. So that he might overcome these guilty consciences and remind us that there is nothing for us to contribute to this meal. This meal is not a potluck. This meal is provided. This meal is one that we receive. And Jesus ends the institution of the supper with these words, I tell you that I will not drink again. I'll not drink again of this fruit of the pot until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Passover had this backward-looking orientation. It looked to the past. It was a memorial. It looked back to that great deliverance. But it also had this present orientation. It was a meal. It provided strength for the present, for the journey. But it always had this future orientation. You know, when you celebrated the Passover, and even to this day, the Passover liturgy includes this recitation. 
as he holds the bread, he says, this year we eat in the land of bondage, next year in the land of promise. Jesus says, the next time I drink this cup with you, it will be in the land of promise. I won't drink it again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Beloved, do you understand what that means? It means that if you're trusting in Christ, you will be there. You will be there to eat and drink with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because the blood of Jesus covers you. Because the wrath of God passes over you. And so today, as we come to this table... Let's practice receiving the supper like we practice receiving the gospel. Receiving it as a gift of grace. Receiving it by faith. And as we do, let's look back and wonder at what Jesus has done. Let's take strength for the present. And let's look forward in faith to that heavenly promised land. Maybe next week. Maybe next week we eat in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we, we long for heaven. We long to be with you in your presence. We long for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We long to eat with unveiled face. We long for that eternal promised land. But Lord, we thank you that we no longer eat in bondage. That we have been delivered from our sin and our misery. We have been delivered from your curse and wrath. You have passed over us because of the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, you give us this meal every week as a sign and a seal that you have done all that is necessary. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come to this table today, we would come like beggars, hungry, starving, ready to receive eagerly the bread and the wine as they come from your hand. Lord, help us to receive them in faith, that in receiving them in faith, we might truly receive you yourself and all of their benefits for salvation. Lord, help us to examine our hearts well, to reflect on our love for you, to do that hard work of taking stock of our hearts and laying them bare before you, of owning our sins, that we have been quick to deny you, we have been fearful, we have fled. And yet, Lord, may we not be betrayers. 
But Lord, may we rest in your grace and find grace and mercy to help even in this hour of need. Lord, we thank you for the supper. Maybe next week in the land of promise. Amen. This is indeed the heavenly banquet. And today we get a foretaste of that heavenly meal. As Jesus himself is with us by his spirit. And he gives us today the bread and the wine. And it is a gift. And so today as we come to this table, let's receive it in that way. But you know, this meal... Though it is a gift for sinners, it is a gift for repentant sinners. It is a gift for those who have professed their faith in Christ, who are members of the church of Christ, who love the Lord and are are desiring to walk in faith and in repentance. And so if those things are true of you, then you are welcome to come and to join us in this celebration. But if If it's not true of you, if you know that you are a hypocrite, if you know that you do not belong to Christ, if you know that you are not professing faith and trusting in Him, the Bible warns you that in this meal you might eat and drink judgment to yourself. And so though you might let these elements pass today, I would just call upon you as a minister of Christ not to let him pass. He is here to be received by faith. And he promises that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But let let nothing keep you away if you are desiring to be found in Christ. Even if you are doubting today, even if you are asking, is it I? come to this table, this is where you find assurance. This is the very means of grace which God has appointed to this end. And so as we come to this supper, let's ask that the Lord would give us that grace of assurance. Uh, let's, Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your table, we do not come trusting in anything that we have to offer. We come simply trusting in all that you offer to us. You say, take and eat and drink. Lord, help us to receive these things now with faith. For we say it in Jesus' name. Amen.